Dave, I really like uh, what you said in your prayer that we will never be you, God, but we want to be like you. I think that's an awesome way to frame it. So thank you for that. Well, good morning. Um, Dave mentioned earlier in the announcement about uh, the pastor search, and I just briefly wanted to share with this. Uh, it's been a long time since y'all done that. So I just want to remind you that uh, this is about to be a time of transition, and times of transition uh, can be a little bit messy. Um, because we're going to be dealing with uh, resumes and things coming in and contacting people and having people speak and all that. We don't know exactly how that's going to shape out in terms of the calendar, but just to make you aware, we're entering our time of transition, and I can tell you from previous experiences that also for me, uh, in the transition out, it's, uh, it's not easy, So, and there's, a, there's kind of a right time to do that. So there's a lot of things for us to process. We appreciate uh, your prayer on that. Uh, what we're going to do, just so you'll know, if you've got an interested candidate or there's somebody you really would like to be a candidate, if you'll have them contact Bob Miller and uh, give the contact information of Bob, we're going to give everybody a chance to, to get out of the blocks at the same time around September 1st. So the team will send out a packet on September 1st. So we're not like getting full bore into that until September 1st, but we will take their name and we'll get in touch with them. So that's just on a... A practical level that's something you can consider doing so anyway I just want to mention that to you well why don't we uh, get into the Word of God this morning first with prayer and turn the time over to the Lord father thank you so much for all you do and uh, we are grateful for you and your word and we're grateful for the legacy of those who came before us and we pray as the song says that may all who come behind us find us faithful that we have been also faithful to you and there have been times when believers were faithful unto death, and we will see that this morning. I pray that you will enlighten us as we do that to inspire us to think about our own lives and our own commitment to you. So we want to turn that over to you now and just pray that you'll speak through me and speak to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, uh, we are actually going to look at quite a bit of, of scripture this morning because it's a big passage, and I believe that when we look at the scriptures that we often overlook the fact that scripture is narrative, it's a story. It's in the big sense, the story of God, and his relationship with mankind, his relationship with the angels, with the universe. And then we have specific stories underneath that. So today we happen to be in the book of Acts where we have the longest speech in the book of Acts we're gonna look at today. And it's a whole section and I think we should look at it holistically. And so that's what I wanna do today is look at the whole package. So what that means for me as a speaker is that I have to uh, figure out how in the world I'm going to cover this material, but I think it beats chopping it up. And, and I would encourage y'all, if you do happen to be on the search committee for the next pastor, make sure that pastor understands the importance of story in the scripture, why, how it fits in, what it means for structure, the power of story, because if you want to rightly divide the word of truth, you have to understand the nature of scripture as story. It is truth, but it's also story. So anyway, uh, today we're going to look at the story of Stephen. If you look up there where it says thin red line, all right, I get it's a little hard to see, but you see this thin red line of blood of people that have given their lives for the Lord. We start with the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example. We have Jesus, of course. We have Stephen we'll see today. You could put a lot of names after that, uh, like I mentioned last time, just hundreds or thousands. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliott, on and on and on, um, and then us. I mean, only the Lord knows what our future is. 
but there's a red line of faithfulness to the Lord that goes through the history of God's people. And today we're going to look at that starting in Acts chapter 6. Next week, um, as persecution causes the church to get out of the kettle because the kettle boils over, it causes the church to expand, and that's what God uses to fulfill what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. We tend to like to be in our comfort zone. They were no different, and God uses persecution to blow them out of the comfort zone. But that'll be next week. Um, so today, will you look with me in Acts chapter 6, and today we are following up the passage that had to do with the widows that were being neglected. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how they chose seven men who came from Greek backgrounds to make sure that this issue was addressed. These are not apostles, but they are men who love the Lord and they are leaders. And it said in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we're still in Jerusalem around A.D. 34. Well, one of those guys is now going to be arrested. We'll see why in a second. But his name is Stephen. He was in that group, and Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, he loved to foreshadow things. He foreshadowed Saul or Paul, and he had foreshadowed Stephen. And so now we look at this Stephen in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So the apostles were not the only ones doing signs. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So these are people who possibly were slaves before, who had been freed, who had come into Jerusalem. They're Jewish. They're very devoted to their Jewish faith. And they don't like Stephen's message, and so they get upset. And by the way, there is a good chance that Saul, who became Paul, is actually one of the people here because he was from the region of Cilicia and Asia. So he might well have been there, and he could argue pretty well, and he might have been also disputing with Stephen, which isn't that interesting to consider. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. God was giving Stephen the words. We'll really see that today. So they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Reminds us a lot of what happened when Jesus was on the earth and they rebelled against Jesus, right? You can see a lot of parallels here with the story of Jesus. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. These are the Jewish leaders. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, which we know as the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses. So this is illegal according to Jewish law, but they didn't care. They found false witnesses, again, like they did with Jesus who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. We heard them. They're going to change our traditions. Very similar to what happened with Jesus. And so you'll notice, I want to, I'm going to frame it this way for you today. There's basically two accusations against Stephen that are coming out. And both of these are very volatile in Jerusalem and in Israel because they basically are attacking the Jewish faith. You have spoken against the law, our sacred oracles from God, and you have spoken against the temple. Now, Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He said when the temple is destroyed, 
I will lift it up, basically in three days, he was referring to his body. But they accused him of wanting to destroy the temple and being a terrorist. So verse 15, now back to Stephen, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, if I'm opposing a guy and saying, you have been speaking against God, and his face looks like the face of an angel, I might reconsider. So what you're going to see in this passage is there's going to be a, a contrast between Stephen speaking for God and the people who are attacking him and saying he's not speaking for God. And so the high priest probably was Caiaphas. By the way, if you go to Jerusalem, you can go to his house. In the basement of the house is an amazing place where probably Jesus spent a lot of his last evening alive. Uh, it's amazing to be there. And Caiaphas said, are these things so? So he's just basically saying, Stephen, we're having a hearing here. Tell me, is this true? That's all this is. You know, it's not like they're trying to necessarily kill him. They're trying to have a hearing and evaluate him and give him a chance to speak. That's all this is. And so Stephen will now launch in to the longest speech in the book of Acts. And the more I've studied this speech, the more brilliant it is. And we have one of two possibilities and maybe a mixture of both. Stephen is either brilliant and extremely clever to think of this on the spot, or the Lord was doing what the Lord said he would do to the apostles and disciples is when you're on trial, I'll give you the words at the moment because when you look at this message he gives, it is absolutely brilliant. It is amazingly brilliant when you look below the surface. And so here's how I'm going to do it today because it's narrative. I'm going to read it uh, for you, but I want you to look for these threads of Stephen's message. Uh, in a group that's hypersensitive about honoring God and not blaspheming, Stephen will begin talking about the glory of God. He, throughout, has incredible respect for God and God's glory. He will speak about the sovereignty of God over and over and over, that God's in control. He will talk about divine calling and direction throughout the history of Israel. He'll speak about the nation of Israel as a family, our brothers and fathers. He will tell them that they've rebelled against the word throughout their history. And he will tell them that you have historically, continually, as a nation, rejected the messengers God sent you, whether they were prophets or Jesus or us. It's going to get a little tricky here. He will talk about the fact that throughout God's history in the Old Testament of Revelation, God involved the angels as a part of giving the word. And then this is really, really big, and it will address the temple issue. He will constantly talk about location and residence. A couple days ago, I was asked that famous question. I get asked a lot, where's your home? Where's your hometown? And if you have heard me say, I have no hometown, I'm homeless. In fact, I was getting my hair cut, and I said, I, I live actually by that dumpster out there. You know, and they're like, sure, sure, sure. But home, residence, location is really big to us. And so I'm going to leave this up here as I read it, and uh, let's just read down through the sermon. I want to respect the sermon and its integrity, so I'm going to read parts, and then I will comment, but uh, I'm going to try to not disrupt it too much. I want to let the Word of God speak for itself. So here's the sermon that Stephen gave to these guys who are hostile, verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. 
Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me at, in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So I'm going to stop for a moment. I will stop at the paragraphs here. I, I, want to, I just want to share with you. You see, you see how land is mentioned over and over. And you see how God has directed this whole thing. Like this plan is God's plan. He directs him to go out, uh, to go from place to place. Abram came from Ur, the Chaldees, and he, uh, his father was a moon god worshiper, and it looks like when they got to Haran that some period of time passed by, and God waited until Abraham's father Terah died, the moon god worshiper who would have brought idolatry into the promised land. After he died, Abram goes to the promised land. But what you notice is God's not bound to a place, right? That's a part of what Stephen is saying, is that God has worked all over the region. He is not bound to a place. But God has worked with his people, and he has called them. And so we see God's work throughout the history of Israel. It is God's plan. And, uh, and so that's what we see, and then we get the line of the, the chosen line. And by the way, did you notice, let me just ask you, did you notice in verse uh, 2 when Stephen began his speech, what did he say? Brothers and fathers, he appeals to the family. You'll notice that throughout he says, our fathers, our brother, whatever. Um, he appeals to the family, says, I'm one of you. You're putting me on trial, but I'm one of you. And that's something that's intentional. Also, he shows incredible respect for God. You see how he starts. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. You're telling me I'm speaking against the law. I'm telling you that the law speaks of our God of glory. So he is honoring that. There's nothing dishonorable in the speech of Stephen. It's just amazing. And he weaves all these things I put up here. He weaves them throughout the story. So now let's go to verse 9. We've been talking about Jacob, the 12 patriarchs, so we're way back in the book of Genesis here. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So again, we see the theme of place. We see the theme of our nation, our people. We see a theme of visit. I didn't put that on here, but I could have that God in his salvation uh, plan visits mankind. He visited in Genesis. He visited with Jesus. He visited really with John the Baptist, uh, and he is visiting now, and he's giving the people of Israel a chance to repent so their nation will survive, but more so that they'll honor and glorify God. And so that's one of the themes here. So you really see all of these kind of things. Now, he's getting warmed up here. He has not brought the conviction just yet, but he is making a point that God is working in their midst, that he has worked in their midst, that God has a plan and God has a word. So now let's look at verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And I, I believe when Moses was confronted by God with a burning bush, and God said, I want you to go and speak to the people of Israel, he's like, no, God, I'm not eloquent. Moses was chicken. That's what happened. He was chicken because he had the training and he had the ability, but he's like, I don't know if I want to do that. It was a matter of fear, but he had the training. He was trained the greatest way anybody could be trained at the time. And we see again, the people of Israel are in Egypt. God is working with them there. God is present in Egypt, and God has a plan, and it's about to get really, really interesting here. So Moses, we think, uh, 120 years old, his life breaks out into three different periods of 40 years. So in verse 23, when he's 40 years old, he's just getting started, right? Life begins at 40. That's what Moses says. The people that say amen are the people over 40, right? <laughs> amen. amen, amen. All right, the problem for me is I'm not terribly far from the second barrier there, the 80. I'm not quite there yet. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit, see the theme of visit, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now the Israelites should have said, oh yeah, 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 he's defending us, our families. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And God was with Moses in Midian. Why? Because God is everywhere. God is not bound to one place. And Moses basically, or Stephen is saying, 
The brotherhood of Israel should have defended each other. That's one thing. But the other thing, do you, do you notice that he's starting to weave in the idea of rebellion against God's word? Because the message was given to them, but they rebelled against what was being said. And so Stephen is starting to paint the picture that our people have been rebellious throughout their history. You know, <laughs> there are sermons that really fire people up. There are sermons that really encourage people, and then there are sermons that really irritate people. And uh, I think Stephen is given one of those. They're about to get into it right now. So we've left Moses in the land of Midian. And now verse 30, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. This is probably the angel of the Lord. It might be the Lord himself, a theophany. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. I want you to notice a few things if you've never caught this. Of course, if you've never read the passage, you've never caught anything. But let's assume you've read it. Most of you probably have. The issue of holy ground here is not an accident because Moses is hearing and Stephen is saying that where Moses is standing is holy ground because God is present, which means what? What's he trying to say? He's, he's throwing this in there for them. God is not bound to the temple. God is not bound to the temple. In fact, may we say wherever God is, is holy ground. And that's what he's saying, because you think about it, he's taking this tour all over the Middle East. It's not an accident. God is everywhere, which this is an aside, but I think it's a worthy aside. I, I often think about the astronauts, and some were believers, and think about what would it have been like orbiting the Earth or doing a spacewalk especially or being on the moon, and to know that even though you're in this remote place and you're depending upon the best science of the United States of America, God is there. Isn't that awesome? I think that's just fantastic. So, this is what Stephen is saying, and you don't necessarily pick up on it the first time, but he is like going, beep, beep, beep. Think about that. Where is the holy place? And God, once again, is speaking. And I like um, what he says in verse 34. Did you catch this? I have come down to deliver them. See, that's what God does for a sinful world. God keeps coming down and visiting. We would not have been saved if Jesus Christ had not come down for us. So God comes down. Now verse 35. See if you notice any thread here. Stephen continues. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, a leader? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us the word of God. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And when they made it, they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, the book of Amos chapter 5. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And when he does, in 586 B.C., God would be with them in Babylon, which, by the way, is modern-day Iraq. God is there. So we see the themes again. I mean, you can see the fathers refused to obey him. Our fathers. Notice again, it's first person. Our fathers. The maybe greatest example of idolatry in the Bible was in Exodus when they made the golden calf. Um, I don't have time to get into that today. Sometime I would love to be able to talk about that passage. God was so angry with the Israelites that he literally told Moses, Moses, I'm going to set aside Abraham and you are going to be the father of the chosen people. He said that to Moses. And I think Moses is vastly underrated as a man of God. And Moses said, God, you can't do that. You made a promise to Abraham. You cannot go back on that. I am not your man. Abraham was your man. It's amazing. So that's a part of what we see here, the living oracles. That's when they received the word of God. That's when the first five books we call the Pentateuch were given to Israel in the wilderness. And so Stephen, again, is weaving this theme. They've always rejected God. They've rejected his word because his word is now given, and they're going to reject it. So verse 44, we're down in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, a temple. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? When Solomon dedicated the temple, God bless him, he said... 2 Chronicles chapter 6. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and this plea, O Lord my God, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house. And he goes on to say, If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, 
may turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive. So what's going on here is that in Israel, they believed that if there was sin in the land, God would do something to the temple. So flip that, if Stephen is speaking against the temple, what does it mean? In their mind, he is saying, there is sin in our land, and God has to judge you. So this theme of judgment is really taking up momentum here. And he's also tweaking them and saying, look, even Solomon said the temple is not the house of God. It is not the box that confines God. It is a place for him to be expressed. But he is not bound to the temple. That's in the word of God. So he's made these points. I don't know who's actually picking up on them or not, but this is going to start taking on a life of its own, and that's what happens next. You have a crowd. Now, this is not a formal trial. It's a hearing. But you also have a crowd there, and the crowd is starting to get riled up. And what's happening is that the mob is about to take over, and that's what's going to happen here. So watch him twist the knife in in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's your story. As your fathers did, so do you. What do you notice there? He changes the person. It's not our fathers, now it's your fathers. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Legend has it that Isaiah was sown in, was sawn in two, that Jeremiah was killed, that the prophets were executed, and they were persecuted. So the fact that you proclaim the word of God doesn't mean you won't be persecuted, it probably means you will. And that's what happened. And it's one thing to be persecuted by the world, but these were the people of Israel. And he says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who is that? Jesus Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And you could imagine how riled up they were getting. So the crowd gets really upset. There is no judicial act here. It is an act of a mob. It is mob violence. Now, probably what he was doing here, when you look at it, is he was about to draw a contrast between Moses and Jesus, like we see in the book of Hebrews. But instead, he never gets the chance because the mob will take over. And I had told you, maybe a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, there's this word enrage. We see a couple of times in the New Testament. And this is the other use. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They were livid beyond belief. They ground their teeth at him. You know, they were looking at him like that. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, I mean, who's got God's word, Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said the words that would have him killed. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it and they rushed together at him. You see, the thing is, Jesus is there in heaven as a judge. When you say Jesus is standing next to the throne of God, in effect, you're saying, you know, God, there is somebody with God to them that was blasphemy. He's saying Jesus condemns you, God condemns you, 
and the crowd can't take it anymore, and it is the crowd who kills him in verse 58. They cast him out of the city according to their law, and they stoned him. Now, I'm not sure exactly how they did the stoning here, but I know from reading what's known as the Mishnah, which is a Jewish rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament, absolutely fascinating. I, I love my copy of the Mishnah. Unfortunately, it was killed in the fire, but uh, there was a passage in there that had to do with stoning, and it said that what they did was they dug a pit, and they put the person in the pit, and they kept dropping big rocks, boulders, whatever they could have handled, onto the person until that person was crushed, and that's what stoning was. So we tend to look at it as dodgeball. I mean, maybe it's some kind of mixture here. I'm not sure. But basically, I don't think getting stoned by a crowd is a good way to go. I don't know about you. And that's what happened to Stephen. And you would think he would have been all panicked and everything else. And because they had to remove their garments to be able to throw easier, they laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul that we know as Paul the Apostle later on. By the way, isn't it an interesting thought that when Paul got to heaven after his head was cut off by Nero, that the people he had had murdered cheered his arrival in heaven? And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Because the New Testament pictures the believer's death as sleep. It's a wonderful thing. It's peaceful. Now what's happened is Stephen now becomes the first non-apostle, non-leader in the church to be persecuted, and he is the first martyr in the church. And so now the opposition has gotten to the point that they're willing to kill for it. And in Acts chapter 8, which we'll get to next time, we'll notice that that means that the gospel will explode out of Jerusalem. That God uses persecution to move the gospel forward. Before we close today, I wanted to allow a little bit of time. I want to share with you some stories of martyrs after the fact. Today we'll talk about the martyrdom. Uh, next week I'm going to talk about the joy that comes with the persecuted. So we're not going to leave it with the negative, I promise. But that'll be next week. Uh, this happens to be the headquarters of uh, the Voice of the Martyrs, USA, in Oklahoma. And if you look on the left-hand side, you'll see a wall that's got three crosses and a bunch of things there. That is the Martyrs Memorial Wall, and that's what it looks like from the side. Now, I doubt you can read too much on it. Oh, yeah, it's better than I thought. Okay, so you'll notice uh, on the right-hand side, the second column over, Martin Ray Burnham, you might remember the story of Martin Burnham. He and his wife, Gracia, were missionaries in the Philippines with new tribes. And uh, when the rebels were fighting against the government, they got kidnapped. It basically was kidnapping them for money. And they were forced to go on the run with the rebels for a year in the jungle. And uh, there was a firefight about a year, 12 or 13 months later. And uh, Martin died in Gracia's arms. Grace's leg was broken, and she came back to great acclaim in the United States. Interviewed with Katie Couric and others. Um, and so she speaks, her voice of the martyrs, and I've had the blessing of interviewing her up on the stage and kind of drawing out some of the, the details there. But uh, that's Martin Burnham, so that's mar more modern. But then you see on the right-hand side, Martyrs from Cilium in 180. And so you can go down there. So 
there are plenty of open panels and periodically they will add names, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, here's the other side, look at the other side. You see on the upper left-hand corner, Matthias in AD 70, stoned to death in Jerusalem. Jerome of Prague, uh, Chet Bitterman, 1981, uh, and on and on and on. So there have been a lot of martyrs who've been willing to give their lives. Uh, one of the more, and that's Stephen, that's the block for Stephen, which I've shown you before in AD 34. Now, one of the more fascinating uh, things I've seen related to persecution, um, anybody make a wild guess where this might be? You will not expect it, I'll just put it that way. It may be the most civilized place or one of them in the world. That's a street in Oxford, England, near the university. And on the street is a cross. And you can see the size of it there. And on the wall next to the street is this uh, plaque opposite this point near the, crown, the cross in the middle of Broad Street, Hugh Latimer. Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Cranmer were burnt for their faith in 1555 and 1556. I mean, for all the bragging they may do in England about how sophisticated they are, it wasn't that long ago they were treating each other very badly. Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer are heroes for the faith. Cranmer, you may not know, but he is the one who designed the Anglican liturgy. He's the one that basically had to deal with now that we've left the Church of Rome, what do we do as a church in, in the Church of England, which we call the Anglican Church? That's Cranmer, a brilliant man. The reason these men were killed is because they stood up for the translation and propagation of the Word of God for the common person. And I cannot imagine a more cruel way to go than to be burned. So just a few hundred years ago in England, they gave their lives for the faith. Right now, today, according to Open Doors, which is based out of Southern California, Brother Andrew, you all remember Brother Andrew, his ministry became Open Doors, that's who they are. Uh, they produce a list every year, the watch list. These are the countries of extreme persecution right now in 2022. Number one is Afghanistan. Number two is North Korea. Uh, North Korea is extremely difficult. Uh, you basically don't go in there. Somalia, friend of mine, missionary friend out of this region. Always wanted to go to Somalia, and he went, and he's like, that was a really bad decision I made. Uh, it was just, it was, the persecution was extreme. Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, ironically, and Iran and India. A couple of years ago, when I had my COVID-era Bible study on, on Facebook Live, and we did a live stream, actually, you know, went around the world because of the internet. Um, I had these guys from Pakistan that said they had a church, like, would you speak to our church? I'm like, whatever. So it was like 11 or 12 at night because of the time zone difference, and I contacted them, FaceTime or Zoom, I don't remember, and the guy, he has his phone, and he doesn't say anything, he just points, and he holds it up, and there was this guy yelling at the congregation. It wasn't the preacher, the police had raided the church right then and there, and I was watching it through the internet. Iran, I'll tell you more about later. India is just so ironic that there's persecution in India, but there is, and uh, that's gotten worse and worse. And uh, So that's number 10. And so, I mean, a lot of these won't surprise you. Uh, Sudan got bounced back from the top of the list because of some political changes we hope will stay. Syria, uh, Qatar, Vietnam, Egypt. The Maldives, an island chain, very beautiful to go to for vacation, but extreme persecution. 
Um, a few years ago, I was speaking in a church on persecution in Greenville, South Carolina. It was a, a international day of prayer for the persecuted church, so they asked me to come and preach, and Susie and I flew into Greenville, and as is our custom, one of the first things we did was go to the local Starbucks, you know, and this kind of blew me away. I noticed in that Starbucks in South Carolina up there, uh, the signboard for the coffee. What struck me was where it said Vietnam Dalat. Because the year before, I had been in this meeting in Dalat, Vietnam. We were taken to this house outside of the city, and we were told, run into the house quickly, don't be seen. And in there they had some eight or nine uh, men from different tribes around the edges, the fringes of Vietnam. The Hmong were one of them, but they all spoke different languages, and they all had been persecuted. And I'm like, here we are in Starbucks, we're seeing Dalat coffee, and yet this is what I think of when I think of Dalat. But it was pretty amazing to have them all pray in their own languages, and um, I asked the leader, uh, he had been beaten and he'd been in prison, I think 14 years worth, something like that, or 11 years, doesn't matter. Um, what was the beating like? He's like, well, I felt the whole thing, and I felt it as every time they hit me. These are people faithful for the Word of God. That's a Bible college in Sudan, bombed by the government. That's a school in Sudan. Now, who would do this? That's just a school. For it's not even big enough to be a village in the middle of nowhere in Sudan. But you see the hole in the front. You know what that is? That's a foxhole. Because the government will fly their cargo planes over, they will lower the ramps, they will just roll bombs out, and even school kids are vulnerable to being killed. That, we went to, the building in the back is a hospital. And the reason for that bomb there is they were intentionally trying to bomb the hospital. Now, who is twisted enough to do that? This is a live bomb. In fact, they told us, turn off your cell phones. You don't want to detonate the bomb. Uh, that's a village, I think I've shown you that before, that was burned out by the government. That's a young man. Hopefully that's not too graphic enough. Uh, or, or too graphic, I mean. Um, a MiG flew over, fired a rocket. A lot of their bombing is not precision, but the MiG, in this case, flew and uh, fired a rocket. It went into this guy's leg. That's what you're looking at. And it's stuck there. And so what he's holding there, the guy's holding that's, I think it's a plunger, but that's the head of the rocket stuck in his leg. So this is a young man who limps around. He's a believer. He limps every day. He has pain every day. And so he, he's asking the question, I paid this price for Jesus. Is it worth it? Uh, I will just give a summary of this. I'll try not to make it too graphic. Uh, this is in Sudan, and we saw this video, government bombing eviscerated five children. We saw the video of them picking up the aftermath. And then this is video that we saw from the funeral. The pastors were so overwhelmed that a pastor would try to preach and he couldn't do it. And so he'd just hand his Bible to the next pastor. That pastor would be so overwhelmed he could not speak and preach. He'd hand the Bible over. So we know around the world people are giving their life for the faith day by day. And it's pretty convicting to meet them and to hear their stories. 
Um, I'm going to finish with this. Sometimes we're asked, how do you prepare for persecution? Richard Wormbrand, who I told you about last week, basically said, if you have to ask that question, you're not going to be ready for persecution. I think that's kind of harsh. It's like, how can we even relate to it? But from what I've seen, what I, what I think we have to realize is this. Number one, we have to saturate our minds with Scripture. What would happen if your Bibles disappeared? How much Scripture would you know in your mind that you would remember? What if you were in a place where the only Scripture you had was what you had planted in your mind? Now, we can spend a lot of time planting our minds with all sorts of stuff, everything from Twitter to magazines to everything, but how much Scripture actually lodges in our brain? Number two, you don't often hear this, but saturate your mind with sacred music. What if you were in a place where you had to be motivated by Christian music, but there was no iTunes and no praise band or anything else? It would be whatever you knew in your mind. Now, I'm going to ask this. Please do not answer. Um, it, just think about it. How many songs do you know by heart right now without being prompted by the praise team? I find that kind of convicting. And as I get older, my memory fades more. It's kind of hard to remember all the words, but there ought to be something up there, right? Number three, become skilled at daily faith. I find that we really have a weakness with this um, because we plan for the future and our daily faith is not quite as sharp. But for those being persecuted, they have to have faith day by day in the Lord for that day and that day only. And that's frankly not where we like to live. And then number four, and this is the last one, become skilled at close communion with God. If you don't have close communion with God now, will you have it under persecution? Will you even know what to do? So, I mean, all of these things are things we should do anyway. But in looking at the persecuted and talking to them, I realize, you know, if I don't do these things, there's not a chance I can begin to be prepared for any kind of persecution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom are in difficult places where they don't have the freedoms we have. They don't have the freedom of worship where Christianity is an optional thing like it is here for them, it's life and death. And the irony, Lord, is that they look at us as heroes because we're from the West. So God, help us to learn from that, to learn from these stories, and help us to have the attitude of a Stephen who even at his death for you was saying, I give my spirit to you because I trust you and because I love you. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you for Jesus.